Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Today we want to let you know, curious is the trapmaker's art, for his efficacy is unwitnessed by his own eyes. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going into our fourth and as of today, final section of our Dungeon Master's Guide Deep Dive for the 5th edition DMG. Today we're going to be covering chases, traps, and poisons and diseases. This is pretty much everything that's going to make your little bard or rogue heart flutter. Possibly even in a very unhealthy sort of manner, depending on what disease you pick up. Just possibly. So these are all the little things that you can throw at your players to add a little bit of excitement that isn't strictly combat. So if you don't have anything that you want to add before we get started, James, then uh, I guess we'll just go ahead and dive right in. Yeah, let's go ahead and jump right on in. All right, so the first thing on our agenda tonight is chases. So we've talked a little bit in the past when we did our episode on non-combat encounters. We talked about using skill challenges to do a chase. The 5th edition DMG actually lays out a series of steps for doing a chase that acts as a mini encounter rather than as a skill challenge. So it's a little more mechanics based and a little less RP reliant. So you're not having to figure out how you're going to use your skills to assist you in a given situation. You're just going through the initiative order using your mechanical abilities, and engaging in a chase? Per the book, yes. From a homebrew standpoint, I personally would, depending on distance, probably have some perception checks to see if the thing you're chasing like rounds a corner or can somehow hide. Also, again, if you have a rogue or someone who's doing some perception checks in the town before, maybe during their downtime, to learn some back alleys so maybe they can get advantage on some rolls. There are definitely some ways you could work with this if you want to spice it up than just a pure mechanical run. But the book does give a very simple cut and dry, this is how it's done. Well, it's funny that you should mention the perception checks because that's actually part of the rules. Or did you miss that part? I apparently missed that part. I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing the dashing and the spells and attack, but I'm not seeing the... It's in the third part. We're going to get to it in a bit. It's under ending the chase. Oh, okay. So naturally, whenever you're doing a chase, you're going to have three main sections. You've got beginning the chase, running the chase, and ending the chase. So when you're beginning the chase... You have to have two parties. You have to have a quarry, who is the person or people running away, and you have a pursuer, who is the person or people chasing. And so what you end up with is you're tracking the distance between the front runner of the pursuers and the rearmost person in the quarry. So if you're all chasing one person, it's whoever the closest person to the quarry is and the quarry. If there's multiple people Like, if your party is running away from an iron golem or something like that, whenever it's a bunch of you and one enemy chasing you, then it would be the distance between whoever's chasing you and whoever's lagging at the back of the party when they're running. That's a lot of words for saying the closest to. Well, yeah, I'm trying to specify just a little bit. But yeah, the two closest individuals, you're tracking the distance between those two. So you're not really going to be tracking damage so much. So in this run, there's not going to be a lot of combat. Really, you're tracking distance between the two parties. And then as we get in, there's going to be a constitution check. Because anybody who ever has to do this rank, you know, because the baby's going to touch the stove or you're going to miss your favorite show. Or if you're still young enough to be in school and you got to run track or whatever for PE, any kind of run-ins 
going to leave you a bit winded. And so I think at this point we get to use some of those con checks that we get to use all the time. Not quite yet, though. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought that's where you were going. So whenever you're starting off a chase, ostensibly it starts off when the quarry bolts. So you're going to start off with having a certain amount of distance between the pursuers and the quarry. You would, in theory, want enough of a distance there to where if the pursuers go first, they can't catch the quarry on the first round because that makes a really boring chase. So the way we're going to set up this pretend chase we're going to run with, you're walking through the town, you're outside of the inn, and you see the halfling still the old lady's purse, and he's a good 40 feet in front of you. And he starts bolting, and you tell him to stop because you're going to try to get that purse back. Yeah, that's a pretty good premise for a starter. So now the chase is on. So we're going into the running the chase. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. There's the horn. The gates are open and they're off. So whenever you're doing a chase, the rules are structured around using the dash action a lot. But because it gets boring if you just say, I dash on my turn, and you're never going to really make up that distance between you and them, assuming that you have the same movement speed as the quarry, or that the pursuers have the same movement speed as you. So you get a number of dash actions that you can perform equal to three plus your con modifier. That's what you get for free. So if we're going to set this up like a good old horse race, our halfling with the purse, he's out a good 40 feet ahead, and he's a rogue, and he's been doing this a while, and he's put some good stats into his constitution because this is how he makes his bread and butter. In the party, we've got our barbarian, we've got our wizard that maybe has a nine constitution, and say, a human monk. Let's throw that in there. Well, see, the barbarian and the monk are going to have an advantage because they get unarmored movement, so they have a faster movement speed. But that'll be all right. So once you have done that many dash actions, let's just say that our halfling has a 14 con, so he has a plus two, so he can dash five rounds in a row for free. On that sixth round, if he dashes, he has to make a DC 10 con save. If he fails that con save, he gets a level of exhaustion. Once you hit five ranks of exhaustion, you drop. Because at five ranks of exhaustion, your speed becomes zero. Now, the interesting thing to keep in mind here is that all of the exhaustion that you gain as part of this chase drops off of you by taking a short or long rest. So this isn't like your regular exhaustion you get from a status effect or anything like that. No, the effects are still the same. But the exhaustion does not last as long. It drops off simply by taking a short rest, as opposed to reducing one rank every long rest. That's a fairly fair way to do it. So going back with our example, our wizard in this chase, he'd only get, if he was rocking a nine constitution, two chances to dash before he starts rolling that constitution check. Because with a negative one, then he'd only get the two. And then with a minus one, he only has a 50% chance of actually succeeding on it. He has to roll 11 or higher. Whereas, say, the Barbarian, who we're just going to arbitrarily say he has an 18 in con. So he's going to be able to do it seven times. And if he's at least level five, he's got a 40-foot movement speed. So he's covering 80 feet around. So he's going to be making up the distance between the party and the rogue pretty quick. And I just have to think of how terrifying that would be for this halfling rogue to be running off with this lady's purse and have this giant barbarian bearing down on him. The other thing, too, is if you're working a race that was a large size or larger, then you also have that move speed added in as well. And so in addition to dashing, you can attack or cast spells using your action. All of the standard rules 
for, you know, cover, terrain, distance, all of those things still apply as if it was just a regular round of combat because all of these things are happening in initiative order. But the caveat is if you choose to attack or cast a spell, that's a turn that you're not dashing. So that's a turn that your quarry, in theory, is gaining ground on you or your pursuers are getting closer to you because you're choosing to stop an attack or stop and cast a spell instead of just running. Yeah, so in this example, let's say our, our halfling is running with the purse. The barbarian's coming up on him quickly. And instead of dashing, our halfling decides to pull out a staff of frost. And he casts Cone of Cold, and it hits on the barbarian. So now the barbarian is, I believe he's slowed. I think so, yeah. So his movement speed gets halved. And that lets our quarry pick up some more speed, get some more distance between him and his pursuers. So at that point, instead of using his dash, he actually used an action to cast a spell and make an attack and move on. And as a rogue, he's able to dash as a bonus action. So he would still technically be able to dash again. We were close, but he just slipped out of our fingers this time. And it's funny that you used a halfling rogue because a halfling has a movement speed of 25 feet, not 30. But because he's a rogue, he can dash as a bonus action. So he's running for his movement. He's dashing as an action, dashing as a bonus action for 75 feet of movement and around. Our barbarian has 40 feet of movement. He's running action dash. So he's doing 80. So he's barely gaining ground on this rogue. He's only gaining five feet around. But that rogue's burning two of his dashes per turn. Yeah, I guess so. Because uh, it does say each time you make a dash, it takes one of your dashes. Yeah, okay. I didn't think of that. But this would be a great place to use something like web or entangle something that will stop a fleeing target or will hamper your pursuers or bind them up so things like wall of ice wall of stone things that actually put in physical barriers grease um, would be a lot of fun yeah i cast banana peel <laughs> yeah you cast banana peel and it's grease those are all things that you can do. Another important detail that they put into the rules is that the participants in a chase never provoke attacks of opportunity against one another. However, you can provoke attacks of opportunity from non-participants in the chase. So let's say in our example here, our party is chasing this halfling rogue. If this rogue happens to run through three of his thieves guild buddies that are just bruisers, they can run through. And if you try and chase them through, those thugs can attack you as you run by. Because they're not taking part in the chase, but they're still hostile towards you. Right, so they'll have their action. And again, this is another thing that can slow up a pursuit as well. So the quarry in this case, as we've mentioned, it has several options to kind of shake free and shake loose. And so once we've been running for a while, we get to the ending a chase. So there are three possible criteria for ending a chase. One is if one party drops out. One is if the quarry is caught. And one is if the quarry manages to escape. So if the quarry gets away, turn to page 53. If you catch this thieving rogue, turn to page 75. Don't actually turn to those pages because I don't know what's on them. It might be news. We don't know. To get to what James was talking about earlier, in order to escape, the quarry needs to break line of sight and then succeed on a dexterity stealth check versus the pursuer's wisdom perception check. So, you know, if this rogue rounds a corner and dashes under a cart or something, under a tarp that's over a bunch of barrels and stuff, that would be sufficient to break line of sight. They would make a stealth check, 
And when the pursuer caught up to where they could see, potentially, where this rogue went, they would have to make a perception check, and their perception check would be compared to the stealth check, and whoever was higher won. If you like video games, this mechanic's done fairly well in Assassin's Creed. Yes. Particularly, like, yeah, if you alert the guards or whatever you run through, there's a well you can always dive into, or a stack of hay, or something like that. And this is that stealth check versus their perception check. And again, done fairly well in that game series. All right, so the stealth check fails automatically if the pursuer can still see them. The stealth check is made with advantage if they have a lot of cover or a large group of people to hide in. And it's made with disadvantage if they don't have cover, if there aren't a bunch of people, or if this is an interesting point, if the lead pursuer is a ranger or trained with survival. That is a very interesting rule, yes. I mean, because a ranger is proficient with tracking. So they'd be able to notice the tracks and what have you. I think it's a fun little detail. It adds a little bit of flavor and it allows you to use a skill that doesn't get used a whole lot. If you're going to try to set up a chase in your session, I would really suggest, even if you're doing it on pen and paper the old-fashioned way, drawing up a map. So you have straights and back alleys and twists and turns. I mean, if you're doing a flat-out foot race on a Serengeti plane, sure. I mean, that's good too, just to have fun or however you want to do that. But I think multiple avenues or multiple lanes that your pursuers can take or that your runner can take, I think that adds a good bit of excitement to the chase, personally. Right, and the book does suggest, if you're planning it, to go ahead and draw out a map. Because you could end up, if you're chasing two people and they decide to split up and go two different ways, now the party has to decide which one they're going to chase. If some of them are going to chase one and some are going to chase the other, it adds an extra level of complexity to the chase. And so in addition to all of these rules, there are complications tables, which tables they are actually amazing. So at the end of each character's turn, they roll a d20. If you roll 11 to 20, nothing happens. But if you roll 1 to 10, you end up having a complication come up that you have to deal with that will otherwise hinder you if you fail. And they've got two separate tables. One of them is the urban chase, and one of them is the wilderness chase. So just for an example, I'm going to read off what a one in each of these is going to be. So a one in an urban chase is a large obstacle such as a horse or cart blocks your way. Make a DC 15 dexterity acrobatics check to get past the obstacle. On a failed check, the obstacle counts as 10 feet of difficult terrain. So it's slowing you down. If the character just happens to yell parkour as they roll the dice, as a DM, I will give advantage. (laughs) I don't know. I have seen Harry Dresden yell parkour enough times and then fall on his face to where I will not do that. Just saying. I just want to encourage people yelling random things at the table. But anyway, a one on the wilderness chase is your path takes you through a rough patch of brush. Make a DC 10 strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics check your choice to get past the brush. On a fail check, the brush counts as five feet of difficult terrain. So again, it's stuff that slows you down. There's ones that end up, if you fail, you fall prone. So it's going to take half of your movement to stand back up. Things like a guard sees you and gets excited and attacks you as you run by. So you can take damage from this, which adds another extra layer of complication to everything because you still have hit points. And if your hit points hit zero, you fall unconscious just like normal. And one last little bit that they throw in here kind of for an additional complication is what they're calling the role reversal, where the pursuers 
can become the quarry. It's like that scene in A New Hope where Hansel and Chewbacca are chasing the stormtroopers down the hall. And then they come out into the room full of stormtroopers. And then they have to turn around and run back. That's a role reversal in a chase scene. So in this case, our little halflings run down. You've got him almost pinned in a cul-de-sac alley. He turns around and smiles. And there's Dunk, the enraged half-ogre with a giant club sitting there roaring at you guys. Yeah. He not we happy. We love Dunk. Well, we don't. Well, I do. Dunk's my buddy. <laughs> He's your buddy, I guess. All right. So that pretty much wraps it up for the chase section. Next thing we've got is traps. So the traps are a little bit earlier on in the book. They're up at page 120 in the DMG. And Still way in the back for mechanics. I know, Wizards. Right? Mechanics up front, please. So I do have a little bit of a gripe with this because the traps section in the Dungeon Master's Guide is not great. It's really not. You go back to even 3rd edition, but particularly in 2nd edition on AD&D, and traps, I mean, there were texts and tomes and magazines about traps, and they could be as simple as a tripwire to these giant complex Rube Goldberg type traps. Traps used to be the thing to do as a DM. I mean, I was looking through the 3.5 Dungeon Master's Guide in preparation for this, and I think it's got like three or four pages of that T-tiny size six font of just traps. A trap with a description and a DC and everything that happens with it. Whereas in the Dungeon Master's Guide 5th Edition, you barely get any description on how to find a trap, how to disarm a trap. You get some basic save DCs and attack bonuses for if the trap gets sprung, and some very basic average damage for it. And then some pretty basic descriptions of what sort of sample traps you can have. Xanathar's Guide, whenever they got all the feedback... And they realized just how lackluster the trap section of the DMG was. They did put a traps revisited section into Xanathar's guide that takes this and breaks it down and goes into a lot more detail and does do a whole lot better job. Yeah, the 5th edition DMG really, really feels like it was broken up like maybe a group got a chapter or two each. And then they all realized they were kind of hitting some deadlines. So they just kind of had to slap a title and paste a little something on it and send it out fast. I'm kind of reminded of the scene from the Christmas show Buddy, where the uh, guy sends the children's book off, seven pages missing. That's how the DMG feels sometimes. So going into traps, you've got two major categories of traps. You've got mechanical traps and magical traps. Mechanical traps are, as the name suggests, purely mechanical. So you've got a trigger, like a tripwire, a pressure plate, spring-loaded something or other, just a tarp over a pit, some sort of mechanical trigger. A bucket over a door. A bucket over a door. That's a classic one. The book suggests you use perception to find traps and then investigation to figure out how to disarm them. Any of us who have been running games for a while know that we typically give people an investigation check if they're looking in a specific location for a trap. If you're checking the lock to see if it's trapped, that's an investigation check. That's not a perception check. Perception is... Finding a trap when you're not specifically looking in a specific place for it. Whereas investigation is a focused search. You think something is in a place, and so you're looking in that place for the thing. A good breakdown of this would be like the investigation would be 
you've noticed the door slightly ajar, so you're checking out the hinges in the door frame to see if there's a trip wire or perhaps even a bucket hanging over the door. Where your perception is, if you're walking down a dark hallway, you'd take your perception check to see if maybe someone left some tacks in the floor or something like that, that you're going to step on and take like a 1d4 foot damage. Well, I mean, even in your example where you're throwing your investigation check, the perception is noticing that the door's ajar. Yeah, that's true. The perception is noticing that something is amiss, something is not right here, and so you're going to investigate to figure out what it is. This makes me want to run a Home Alone scenario. (laughs) So, mechanical traps, by and large, can be disarmed with a thieves' tools check. There are some instances where you can substitute other tool proficiencies for disarming it. So, like... If it's a pressure plate, let's say it's a stone floor and there's one stone that is a pressure plate, you could realistically use stone cutter's tools or mason's tools and wedge the pressure plate in place so that it can't drop. You could repurpose something like pitons from your climbing kit, you know, hammer one of those in to wedge this pressure plate to keep it from going. There's a whole lot of ingenuity that can go into disarming a trap. But the old reliable is using a thieves' tools check if you're proficient with thieves' tools. And as a DM, I fully encourage ingenuity, please. And there are instances where if you know that there's a trap there and you know what the trap does, you could take measures to just neutralize the trap in a way that you can trigger it and have nothing happen. And if it's a trap that doesn't reset itself, then... You're fine. You're done. I can't remember if it was in this book or in another book. An example would be if you have a poison dart trap. So you step on a pressure plate and a bunch of poison darts fly out of the wall. If you know that the pressure plate is there and you know where the darts are going to come out, you can just have someone prop up a shield in front of all those holes where the darts are going to come out. Go ahead and step on the pressure plate. It shoots out all the darts. They all hit the shield. The trap is disarmed. Yeah, that's a perfectly reasonable way to disarm a trap. Or, I guess, design triggering of a trap, I suppose. Right. There's the same concept as a controlled detonation for roadside ordnance, like the military does. And so, magical traps are a bit more complicated than mechanical traps most of the time. I have prepared explosive runes. Oh dear. So, it can have a mechanical trigger, or it can have a magical trigger. Something like a glyph of warding, or the alarm spell. Or it could be something like, trying to think of a good example of a mechanical trigger that would trip a magical trap. You'd have something like a wand set up to trigger when you open a door, or maybe a chest or something like that. Right. You could do that. Proximity. You could do proximity triggers. There was one in the earlier episodes of Campaign 2 of Critical Role where there was an ember and a brazier that every round, if someone was in range, it would shoot a fireball at them. Nice. I don't think it was a proper fireball fireball. I think it was basically burning hands. I think it was a 15-foot cone. But yeah, so every round, until they disarmed it, it triggered and shot fire at anybody who was close enough. And it went off like three rounds in a row. What was the portable hole? Was that what we wound up naming the device you made for our rogue? Uh, The breach patch. The breach patch, yeah. So imagine having a breach patch set up to a pressure plate on top of a bridge. So you wouldn't know it's there until you hit the pressure plate. The breach patch pops open and you just drop through. Oh, that would be, yeah, that would be nasty. Depending on how tall the bridge is. Yeah. And what's under it. Exactly. Hey, look, it's a dunk. (laughs) 
right, so in addition to using perception to notice it, rather than using investigation on a magical trap, they suggest using arcana because it is magical in nature, so you need to have knowledge of the arcane in order to disarm it. Absolutely. A good use of the detect magic spell would also come and work here, because if there is a magical trap, then obviously there's going to be a magical presence or a magical entity. So detect magic should show something, and then it would help you go and investigate versus getting caught completely unawares. Absolutely. Detect magic will pick up the aura off of this magical trap. Assuming that they haven't cast something like Nistel's magic aura on it that blocks detect magic. But hey, that would be something that only a conniving and sinister DM would do, and no self-respecting DM would ever stoop to such a base trick. Never. Never. I still (laughs) want to run a Home Alone session in an Archmage's Tower. Oh, that would be nasty. So whenever it comes to disarming a magical trap, you can disarm it using an Arcana check, because you're able to figure out how it works and how to disrupt it in such a way that it either fizzles or that it goes off without hurting anybody. Or, in most cases, you can just cast Dispel Magic on it. That's no fun. Well, the most efficient things rarely are. But I want to see fireworks. Well, then you can go and step on that pressure plate. I was going to say, do you have any idea how much gold I invested in these traps and I don't get to see any fireworks? (laughs) Seriously? So, there's a couple of tables on page 121 in the DMG talking about the save disarm DCs for your traps, depending on how dangerous the trap is, and also for the damage ranges for the severity of the trap. Whether it's just a setback, something that's just designed to... It's like putting your finger in the electrical socket, and it gives you that pop, you know, that sort of a setback, versus... To all children listening, we do not... <laughs> do not your do this. <laughs> I should have realized that before I said it. Disclaimer, do not put any body part or foreign object into a light socket or a power receptacle. You don't know if it's on or not. Just don't do it. This is your electrical advice from Ian. Don't do it. As someone who has done it unintentionally before, don't do it. Because 240 volts really hurts. So getting back on topic, you can have a setback. You can have a dangerous, which is intended to hurt whoever it is that's triggering the trap. Not necessarily kill them, but definitely leave a mark. This would be the rock salt in the shotgun. It's intended to be non-lethal, but it's still going to hurt a lot. And can be lethal if it's administered at close range. And then you have your third, which is deadly, which is intended to straight up kill somebody. And so you've got the scale of damage output for your trap, and it ramps up based on the tier of play. So your level bracket uh, will determine how much damage each of these deals. So my breakdown of this would be your quote-unquote setback would be just a simple tripwire where you're going to take simple fall damage and maybe it has like some cans or something so it raises an alarm. Your dangerous would be, like we said, that breach patch over a bridge, so you'll take some heavy fall damage. Maybe there's some spikes or some rocks underneath that you're going to take some extra damage with. Deadly would be a magical trap with like a sphere of annihilation or something like that that's just going to ruin your day. Sphere of annihilation is not anything to trifle with. Nor power outlets. Nor power outlets. Don't do it, guys. Don't do it. And so they do also have a breakdown of simple versus complex traps. So a simple trap is a one-and-done sort of trap. So you trip it, it does its thing, and then it's done. 
and you have to reset it before it can go again. Complex traps are ones that will run for multiple turns, so like spinning blades or gouts of fire, the trash compactor walls going back to Star Wars whenever they go into the garbage compactor. Those would all be considered complex traps. If you've played any of the Elder Scrolls games and you've gone into Dwemer Ruins, those are complex traps. I was going to say, since Ian's you know referencing Star Wars so much, I'm going to have to pull out the Indiana Jones card. You've got the traps at the end of Last Crusade. So that first, like the blade trap would be a complex trap, something that went multiple times. Your simple trap would be the second one where he just has the floor where certain tiles will collapse and fall out from underneath you. Yeah, that's actually a really good one. In general, a complex trap is harder to detect and disarm than a simple trap because it has multiple moving parts and you may not be able to see where the trigger is because if it's a complex trap, then more time and money has gone into making it and so it's going to theoretically have a higher quality to it, which would make it harder to detect. So whenever you're looking for a complex trap, you're less likely to find the trap than evidence that there is a trap. Right. And this goes back to, like I said, some of the older editions, some of the really old players of, or not old, but the, let's say the experienced players from second edition and first edition. I've heard stories about DMs that set up traps to where like the people walked into a temple and they triggered the trap as soon as they walked in the door. And the question was if they could hear the perception check of the acid burning through a rope, which burnt through another thing, which caused a tripwire, which set a fire in the back that burnt down the support structures of the roof. And so if they either didn't notice the trap was going on or they didn't leave in a certain amount of time, then the whole roof of the building would collapse on the players. So like I said, those traps got really, really ornate and really complex over time. There's a book that I borrowed from our friend Tom a while back. It was a third edition supplement book called Traps and Treachery. It was a third party supplement book that was really good because it had something like 25 or 30 different traps in it and it went from really simple stuff at the beginning to really complex nasty stuff at the end i like it i'll have to find that yeah i can remember a couple of them there was one it was called you first and it was designed for an encounter where you're going to take someone as a captive and have them lead you through the dungeon and you have a stretch that looks suspicious it looks like there is a pit trap here And so you tell them to go first, so they cross over where the pit trap is going to be, nothing happens, because the trigger is on the other side. And so once you you get 10 feet past the pit trap, that's where the trigger is, and so the pit trap opens up and dunks in whoever's in the back of the party. Oh, wow, that is really tricky. So there was that one, and then one of my personal favorites is called One Last Coin. And so it's one that's designed to be in a treasure hoard where you've killed all the things and you've found all the money and you've cleaned up all the money. And at the end of everything, you find one last coin on the floor and someone goes over and picks it up. And the underside of that coin has a glyph on it that has been sealing over this small hole in the floor. And inside of that small hole in the floor is an Efreet. It's dunk. And so you pick up the coin And the Efreet is free to come out of the hole. I like it. So you think you're done, and so you're in loot mode, and then all of a sudden there's an angry fire genie in the room with you who is none too pleased at his centuries of captivity. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, they went in 
and put a Traps Revisited section into Xanathar's Guide to Everything, which really helped a lot with the traps. I didn't pay a whole lot of close attention to see if they added additional traps, but all of the traps that were in the Dungeon Master's Guide have been added to Xanathar's Guide with specific instructions on how to identify each of these traps and how to disarm each of these traps. So a specific set of guidelines for this particular trap, you have a DC-13 Thieves' Tools check to disconnect the tripwire and disarm the trap. That sort of thing. And if you want to get some more ideas on different kinds of traps and how to implement them, there is a YouTube channel called Master the Dungeon. They have a wonderful traps playlist on their channel. I think it's 12 individual videos. They're all five to eight minutes long, so they're really easy to sit down and digest. And, I mean, it's just some really amazing content. And I suggest that you go and look it up. I'm going to put it in my Thursday notes post on this episode on Twitter. So if you get a chance, go over on Thursday and take a look and follow the link to watch some of these videos. They're actually really well done. So whenever you're talking about traps, a lot of traps have poisons as part of their components. So whether it's, you know, a puff of poison gas or dust or poison darts that shoot out or what have you, poisons have always been a big part of traps. And so I feel that it's only appropriate that we actually talk about poisons for a little bit. Absolutely. And poisons have a long storied history, obviously, in D&D. And the role these poisons have played and who gets to use them and how has changed quite a bit over the years. You go back and even in first and second D&D, only the assassin, particularly like not even the rogues in general, but only the assassins were really ever able to use poisons except for extreme circumstances. That was the text. That's how it was written. Even some of the more recent texts have notes to the DM saying not to let the players go willy-nilly with poisons, that it tends to be class-specific or even alignment-specific, saying that's more of an evil character's tool. And the way damage has been dealt with poisons has changed a lot. As much as I like 3rd edition, they really kind of messed up poisons, I think. So we'll go in and break down about how they were used and gathered and things like that. But again, just a long storied history. Traps and poisons kind of go hand in hand. It's one of the quintessential features of D&D with the poisons and traps. And I mean, rogues, you're going to go bursting into a cave or an old tomb. You kind of have that stereotypical, you know, mummy's tomb. There's going to be traps. There's going to be different things. So yeah, these really tie in really well. Yeah, so let's go ahead and go over 5th edition poisons, and then we can ruminate a little bit on poisons in older editions. So in 5th edition, you have four types of poisons. You have contact poisons, which are absorbed through the skin. So you, you touch it and you get it. Ingestion, so you have to eat it. Inhalation, so you have to breathe it in. Or injury, which means you apply it to a weapon and it's injected. So there's a pretty good list on page 258 in the Dungeon Master's Guide with a list of a whole bunch of different poisons, what their effects are, what type of poison they are, and what their save DC is. So that's a pretty good place to start whenever you're looking for specific poisons to use. Right, and I like this list that they've put here for 5th edition. Like I said, 3rd edition really messed up poisons because instead of actual hit point damage, they all gave like a weird status effect or they damage your ability points. Not all of them. Most of them did. Like I said, very few did actual 
physical damage. Most of them were like some sort of weird status effect type thing. Like I said, it made things really clunky and hard to understand. And I really disliked how they did poisons in third edition. Well, the whole third edition thing of dealing damage to your attributes made things really clunky. It did make things real clunky. Now, again, with some of the poisons that dealt like wisdom or intelligence damage, I do like that as a fact because obviously, I mean, that's going to lower your ability check scores. And I like that. And I think 5th edition kind of rounded that a little bit better by just giving you, you know, a status effect, which I am perfectly okay with. I mean, there are a lot of poisons in 3rd edition that do give status effects. Right. But instead of hitting your ability score, just in 5th edition, you take a physical damage and possibly a status effect. Versus, you know, you're taking 1d6 constitution damage. So like, okay, so my cons, a 12, I take four con damage. So now my hit points change. Now I've got to do a bunch of math real quick to figure out how many hit points I have left versus my full. And like I said, it was just, it was really icky. I mean, even in 5th edition, not all poisons deal damage. Some poisons are strictly... Status effect. And that's fine. Yeah. And that's fine. Like I said, my issue was trying to figure out everything once you dealt... Because, like I said, a majority of the 3rd edition dealt the ability point damage. Yeah, a bulk of the 3rd edition ones were specifically targeting attribute points, uh, mostly strength and con. Yeah, so that is one of the big changes between editions, and I am of the opinion that it was a change for the better, just because dealing damage to your attribute points sucks. It did, and like I said, that's something that 3rd edition really flubbed real hard. Now, if you go back to 2nd edition, 2nd edition... Again, all of those beautiful, beautiful tables. As much as we say that the 5th edition DMG kind of skimps on details and rules, mechanics on how things work, 2nd edition was like, here is every little detail laid out. And so it's a lot denser, it's a lot harder to read. But they broke down things much better. And in 2nd edition, your poisons dealt specific amount of damage, and most of them had a save. And so you had your table of what you took if you made your save, what you take if you missed your save. One or two would have a status effect like paralysis or something like that, or being slowed, and you just took those no matter what. Those were only one or two. But that said, second edition, you had poison types A through R, and each one had a save and a not save. And so it was a lot to keep track of. You had to bring a library with you to the table every week, and so that was a little unwieldy for players. The other really neat thing that second edition and first edition broke down into was how you collect your poison. So they'd go through and like a specific monster. And again, for second edition, every little detail they had mapped out. So they had your percentage of being able to collect poison from a monster, depending on if you killed it with a bludgeoning weapon, if you killed it with a magical spell, if you killed it with a piercing weapon, if you had somehow incapacitated it with how much hit points it had left. Every little detail was marked down. So the exact condition that you defeated this monster, and then you'd roll and try to collect, and you'd roll a percentile dice to see if you succeeded or not. And then you'd be able to harvest your poison if you were an assassin. So in 5th edition, some of your poisons you can buy on the black market. It does specifically say on the black market because they're poisons, and a reputable dealer isn't going to just be selling poisons out on the street. You could potentially go and buy ingredients if you are proficient with a poisoner's kit, or I would argue even an alchemist kit. I feel like if you went to the apothecary because you needed rat poison, it was a very large rat, about six feet tall. Weighs about 200 pounds. Keeps sneaking around your wife for some reason. You have no idea what's going on. Little beady eyes. Anyway, so you can buy ingredients and make your own. And it does say that you have to be careful about it because you could draw suspicion to yourself and then you have nosy guards poking in and figuring out why you're buying all of these ingredients that you can use to make poisons. 
or some poisons can be harvested. So things like purple worm poison or carrion crawler mucus. They're poisons that you can harvest from specific creatures. And the way that they have it set up in 5th edition is you have a DC 20 intelligence nature check and it takes 1d6 minutes. And if you are proficient with a poisoner's kit, you can make a dexterity check or an intelligence check with your poisoner's kit instead of a nature check. So and you, anybody can do it. And anybody can do it. Yes. You just have to be proficient with the poisoner's kit in order to use a poisoner's kit. But anybody can do a nature check, whether they're proficient in nature or not. But DC 20 is a really high thing to hit if you're not proficient. Unless you're a druid. Well, a lot of druids are proficient in nature. Granted. I totally have an urban set druid. That's fine. But so if you fail on the DC 20 check, you don't harvest anything. And if you fail by five or more points, you have to make a saving throw against that poison. Because you're about to flub it and be affected by the poison. I like that it's simplified. It makes the game more accessible to different people. And I will say Wizards has done that correctly. That's one thing they've really worked on is making the game accessible. You know, more people can play, more people aren't generally scared by a wall of text and things. So again, these rules are definitely simpler, but I don't know. Those second edition tables, they make my heart flutter a little bit. Yeah, I like that they simplified the harvesting rules. I really, really like that. Just because it lets you play more into the whole finding whatever it is that you need to harvest from and then getting to the specific set of circumstances that you need to harvest it. So if you need purple worm poison, you got to find you a purple worm and then you got to kill you a purple worm. And I think personally that if you're going to put your party through the ringer to have them find and then kill a purple worm specifically to harvest its poison that it should be a fairly standard one and done check whenever you get done. And I can see that. Like I said, there are certain things about second edition that really sing to me. And again, it's probably because that's where I first had my introduction to. So that's the old man in me saying, you know, back in my day, we all tied an onion to our belt. But yes, definitely fifth edition, the game is much more accessible. And so I can't complain too much because at the end of the day, we want people playing. So however you play to get more players at the table, I support. And there's absolutely no reason why you can't take inspiration from those second edition tables, pull them into your personal home game, and set up a set of rules like that where the manner in which you kill the creature will affect whether or not there is anything to harvest. In one of my games, and this was the game that you were in with Magnus, I had my party fighting a purple worm and it ate the sorcerer and she cast a fireball on herself from the inside of the purple worm that dealt enough damage to kill it. And so its head popped like a grape. That was a spicy meatball. That was a very spicy meatball. So in that particular case, because of RP purposes, there's nothing left to harvest. You done popped it like a zit. There's nothing there. So, yeah, depending on how the players want to interact with things, you definitely, as the DM, ultimately you make the rules. DM is God. DM is never wrong. As long as you're fair with the rules, there shouldn't be an issue. Your table, your game, just be fair about it. Don't be a dick at the table. I take umbrage with your DM is God and DM is never wrong, but that is a conversation for another episode. Anyway, so while we're on 
this particular topic with poisons, there's a tangential aspect that carries into diseases. And diseases, like poisons, have been in the game for a very long time and have done a various number of things. Third edition diseases were terrible because they all did ability score penalties as opposed to any other things. So I'm glad that they've gotten away from that again. But they have greatly simplified diseases in 5th edition, I think, to their detriment. Because there are a lot of diseases that are no longer named. So things like Slimy Doom. The Slimy Doom was a disease that you caught from the mucus of an aboleth. You would have to keep yourself submerged in water to keep yourself wet, to keep yourself from drying out as your skin turned all translucent and you basically disappeared into a puddle of goo. The classic mummy rot is missing. I was going to get to that. Mummy rot is no longer classified as a disease. Mummy rot is now classified as a curse. Interesting. In older editions, mummy rot was considered a magical disease, not a natural disease. So it could only be cured with magic. But now they have gone and changed it from a magical disease to a curse so that, you know, you can use remove curse or greater restoration to get rid of it. But it makes it a little bit more dangerous than most of the other diseases because since it's a curse, you can't use lesser restoration to remove it. You have to have access to that slightly more powerful magic. And it also means that Paladin with their Lay on Hands ability can't remove it because they can only remove poison and disease with their Lay on Hands. So if it had remained a magical disease then a first-level paladin could blow all five points of their lay on hands and cure it. But now it requires a fifth-level spell, which I think is appropriate for a magical disease as potent as mummy rot is supposed to be. Yeah, I don't have any complaints. And I mean, a magical disease, that's almost a curse by definition. So I don't have too much of an issue with them moving that around. As much as they've shortened out diseases in fifth edition, Again, I'm going to go back and reference second edition and all of the tables they got. And like I said, sometimes those tables are really bulky and unwieldy, but they've got a really nice simplified table in second edition. You pick your disease by what it affects, whether it's like a digestive disease or blood disease or brain disease or if it's a parasite. And then they'd have your roll of D8. And depending on the D8 was the severity of it. And then depending on what the severity was, they had a table of how much damage you're going to be taking. Sometimes it was per turn or sometimes it was just a flat, well, you took this much damage for this before you get it cured. Depending on severity was how long it took you to shake the disease. So if you had a slight case of the hiccups or whatever disease, I don't have my second edition book open up right now. But okay, it's going to take two weeks to get over it versus a more severe case would take a month versus this is going to be lethal and you're going to have it till you die. And it's probably going to kill you. Right. And so, like I said, that chart right there wasn't too unwieldy. And again, they specified, so they still left a lot to your imagination because they just picked the system that it targeted. Not specifically, it's this disease named X, but whatever. And then gave you a really clear mechanics of how the disease are going to work, how it's going to affect the character, how they can get rid of it, or how long it takes for them to shake it on their own, and done. Right, so just going off of what's in the 3.5 Dungeon Master's Guide, you have a total of 10 diseases on the table in the 3rd edition DMG. And most of them don't tell you how you get them, specifically. Things like Cackle Fever. Cackle Fever is one that is still in the book. It's one of the three that are in the 5th edition book. 
but it gives you the symptoms. It tells you that it's an inhalation disease and it gives you the incubation period, but it doesn't tell you what you catch it from. It doesn't tell you you get this from breathing myconid spores or you get this from the mold on bones in a crypt or some bad water. No, it's inhalation. Oh, okay. So it's not an ingestion. So it's something that you have to breathe in. So it's going to be something like mold or some sort of spores or some sort of poisonous gas. It is communicable from person to person. So maybe the infected individuals are plague vectors, but it doesn't give a specific. These are the original plague vectors that people get this disease from. Right. And I think they were trying to leave that to either supplemental text or possibly player imagination. Yeah, but if you're going to do that, you need to at least give a basic framework of the places that you get it or the sorts of broad categories of various flora or fauna, microflora, microfauna. It doesn't matter. you got to tell us where it comes from. Yeah, they really should have. They really, really should have. So as I was griping, and this is going to continue a little bit of a gripe, there are three diseases listed in the diseases section of the Dungeon Master's Guide in 5th edition. Cackle fever is one of them. Sewer plague is one of them. It is the disease that was referred to as filth fever in earlier editions. They've just renamed it. And then sight rot, which I think was called uh, blinding sickness in 3rd edition. Yeah. It's based off of river blindness, which you get from black fly bites. It's a parasite that is transmitted through black flies. Right. Now, to be fair, the DMG in 5th edition does say this is some sample diseases. And again, this is the thing that kind of leads me to think that they ran out of time and just kind of slapped some stuff together to send it out because here's some sample diseases, but then they never give a reference anything else anywhere in the text. Like, hey, this is coming up in a later book. Check out over here. Here's a table on the appendix. Just those three. Yeah, and they never give you any guidelines on how to make your own diseases. Right. So, like I said, this is one of the things that made me think they just kind of wound up slapping some of these chapters together real fast. So, as a personal project, I'm going through and trying to pull the 10 diseases that are listed in the 3rd edition DMG, trying to pull those out and modify and update them for 5th edition, and hopefully I'll have them ready for the write-up on Friday, along with a vector for each of these. So the sorts of places or creatures or situations where you might be able to catch it. And just to give a little bit of an idea of the sorts of things that you can do with these diseases. That'll be awesome. And as a broadcaster note, because I know it's going to happen, it's only a matter of time. But if you run COVID at your table, too soon. Yeah, don't do that, guys. Have a little bit of tact, a little bit of class. Too soon. If it's 10 years from now, too soon. Yeah, we're just finally starting to get to the point where it would be mildly appropriate to run bubonic plague at your table. Almost. So I think that pretty well does it for today. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. We got to deal with some classic topics. And as I said before, these things have carried through very well through D&D. They've changed over time. But if you ever get a chance to find some of the old text or even just go online and look up some of the rules, really, it can be a fun exploration to see how things have changed over time. So if you get a chance to explore those, I would really suggest it. If nothing else, to give your own world a little bit more flavoring, kind of give you a little bit more to draw off of if you want. Now, there is one last thing that I wanted to pull out regarding diseases, because I've seen this argument 
online a bunch of times is, you know, if diseases can be cured with a magical spell, how can you have epidemics? And the simple answer from my perspective is because spell slots are a finite resource. So if you have a disease, let's say, I know we just talked about not doing this, but if we were to use COVID as an example, a disease that has an incubation time where you're contagious without being symptomatic and you can spread it. And by the time you have symptoms, you've already spread it to 30 people. Yeah, you can heal the person with magic, but all of the other people around them have already been infected and they've already started infecting other people and they've already started infecting other people. And eventually you're going to have more cases than you've got spell slots. Right. And I was being nice, but that is another table that was brought up in second edition that I really enjoyed was even with the poisons and the disease both. There's tables on when you picked up the poison or the disease, how long you have it before you start seeing effects. So either your start period or your incubation period. Again, that was one of those things covered. Like I said, second edition, they really did go through and list almost every possible scenario to work it out. So, And the incubation times have remained with the diseases throughout all of the editions. Even the fifth edition diseases have incubation times. But as Ian was saying, yes, those spell slots are at a premium. You also have to think per your characters and even your villains, if you want to take them into account, How many NPCs are there? So your characters are obviously, you know, heroic characters. They are above and beyond the average Joe. And so your average Joe is just going to be a level one, whatever, level one human, level one rogue, fighter. A level one commoner with a 1d4 hit die. And they're not going to have any spell slots. Right. So there may be a priest in the town, but your priest is probably only going to be at most, say, a fifth or sixth level cleric if it's a small town. A 5th or 6th level cleric would be very generous for a small town. So they barely have 3rd level spell slots, which is what I think Lesser Restoration is a 3rd level spell. It might be a 2nd, but I think it's a 3rd. And so if it's a 3rd, then if they're a 6th level cleric, they have 2 3rd level spell slots. So they can cast Lesser Restoration twice a day. If you have a town of 80 people and 6 of them get sick on the first day, he can only heal 2 of them. And the other 4 keep the disease... And you might be really, really sick, but the church needs a new roof. That noble's probably getting healed first. Yeah. So anyway, I think that pretty much does it for today. If you liked what you heard, or if you have a topic that you want us to cover, go ahead and send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account, at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing RP prompts inspired by my Shakespearean insults page-a-day calendar. They're going up on the Twitter account six days a week. I've also finally started cross-posting to Instagram and Facebook again. It's hard for me to do because I do everything on my computer, and then I have to figure out how to transfer that information to my phone to put it up on Instagram, which is why I stopped doing it for a while. But I'm trying to get back into it. Social media requires a lot of juggling, and it's a lot of work. You've been doing a great job. I try. I really do. Especially since I'm following various paths. I'm trying to get us a WordPress page set up so that way we have a place to host all of our content. So that way you have a one-stop shop where you can just go in and go through a menu and find whatever archetypes or the magic items or any of those sorts of things that we have created and released. A very easy to navigate sort of deal. I'm also looking into creating a Patreon account for us. 
So hopefully here in the next couple of weeks, we'll have a Patreon account set up. Our podcast is on most platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all of the major podcast outlets. So if you would, please leave us a rating. Please leave us a review, a like, a subscription, whatever it is that you can do to help get our numbers up to increase our visibility. It would be greatly appreciated. And on that, thank you very much again for listening. We'll see you again next week. Happy gaming, all. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.